down uh, in the back of the bottom drawer in my desk are cards. Most of them thank you cards for one thing or another. A few uh, miscellaneous things there. Uh, you might uh, recognize some of them because they all came from uh, some of you. Uh, this card has been sitting in my office for quite a while. You can see a face of my grandchildren who are absent today. Dear Dad and Papa, thanks for being such a great dad and papa. The kids look forward to seeing you every week at church, and that makes me smile. And they make me smile, and I miss them not being here today. Thank you cards are a wonderful blessing. As I got those out this week and just kind of read through them, which I, I rarely do, but I keep them and enjoy them from time to time, I just marvel at how the Lord interweaves lives. And, uh, you know, this and this and this and things came together and the Lord does things. A thank you note is a wonderful, uh, a wonderful blessing. It's an encouragement. And in Philippians 4, as we get very near the end of this book, we're going to see a thank you note from the Apostle Paul. He said thank you to the Philippians for the great gift that they had sent him. Please follow as I read Philippians 4, starting in verse 14. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound, and I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. As we come to, this, uh, to the end of this book, Paul's thank you note not only lets us see his heart, but it also helps us understand God's heart for all believers. And so Paul begins saying thank you to the Philippians by saying, I appreciate your financial support. He says there in verse 14, um, Nevertheless, you have done well. Now, part of the reason he writes it this way is because just before that he said, I'm content in whatever circumstance I'm in. Now, if you give somebody a gift and they say, I'm content, <laughs> you might think, oh, they don't want my gift. They don't need my gift. The Apostle Paul is trying to teach the Philippians several things through this whole process. And the first thing he taught them was, you know, I have learned to be content with whatever God provides. And now he moves on to say, thank you for letting him provide through you. The, the principle that we understand here is this. God intends for his work to be supported by his people. That is God's plan and, and the Apostle Paul wants to make sure they know that. He, he, he wants to make sure they know that he's not rejecting their gift or 
or saying, well, I didn't really need it. You know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. No, he's saying, no, it was good that you shared. Um, this was an opportunity for Paul to reinforce a teaching which was new in the Christian world. You have to put yourself in the time that the Bible is being written, which is, I mean, this letter is hand-carried to the Philippians, and the material in it, it, much of it is new material, because God is in the process over that time frame from the death and resurrection of Christ, about A.D. 33, up until about A.D. 90 or so, he's step by step, year by year, revealing the rest of his truth until the Apostle John writes the book of Revelation and, and God's canon, God's uh, scripture is finished. And so there's a new truth here. And this truth Although there was a certain naturalness to the Philippians, they just looked at Paul's situation and said, he needs help. But they didn't fully understand the whole process that God wants to use, and so Paul takes a moment to reinforce some things with them. In the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, in the process of defending his work among the Corinthian church, the Apostle Paul writes this. Now, I've put together a little table here with some principles next to it. And uh, if you don't have time to write it all down and you want it, you email me this week and I'll send it to you. But I wanted to share this with you because there's a significant portion of Scripture and the Apostle Paul has a lot to say about supporting his work. And so he says in, in 1 Corinthians 9.1, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? What's the principle there? The position, he's going to get to this in verse 2, the position of apostle was worthy of support. He says, am I not an apostle? In other words, I'm not chopped liver here. You know, I am the Lord's chosen man to do this ministry. And he says this, if I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. What's he saying? He's saying, I came and I led you to the Lord. So you're out there criticizing me. Now, wait a minute. I'm an apostle of Christ, and for sure I was God's minister to you. They owed their spiritual life to him. They owed their spiritual life to him. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? <laughs> do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas or Peter? Have you ever thought about Peter going on his travels, taking his wife with him? You see that? And the other apostles all had a wife that came with them when they went and did the Lord's work. He says, don't I have a right to take along a believing wife? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? See, here he's getting to it. He's saying, he's saying uh, first, of all, first of all, he says, Every Christian is entitled to the normal means of life, eating, drinking, and a family. Now, he's not saying that God owes that to you, but what he's saying is, as a human being, as a Christian, I walk from day to day, I eat, and I drink. Normally, most 99.9% .9 of us statistically have a family. He said, those are the normal things of life. Am I not entitled to that? Now, you'll see what he's building up to here in a minute. Who goes to war at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Do I say these things as a mere man? 
Or does not the law, the Old Testament law, say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? In other words, this is a principle. He's saying this is a timeless principle of God. God isn't concerned about the oxen. The law said it was right for the worker to benefit from his work. That's a principle. Or does he say it all together for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? So the principle is the spiritual ministry should be materially supported by those who benefit from it. And the last verse here, if there are uh, partakers, if others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Paul willingly gave up his right of support for the sake of the ministry. Now let me pull this all together for you a little bit. What the Apostle Paul is saying is this. He said, it's normal and it's good and it's proper before God for those who commit their full time to serving the Lord to be supported by the rest of the people in the Lord's work. He's not saying that it's mandatory. He's not saying it has to be this way. And, and in, in fact, one of the places where we don't practice this is when we send missionaries to the field. In fact, when we send missionaries to the field, we do the exact same thing that Paul did. Paul said, I have not used my right to be supported by you because of a concern for the gospel. What's that mean? That means that when Paul went into Corinth or Philippi or Thessalonica or wherever he went, he didn't preach the gospel and then say, okay, now you all have to give an offering. What would have happened if that was the case? People would have thought, well, you're just here to get an offering. And until people know God through Christ as their Savior and grow up in him, they're not capable of understanding these spiritual principles. And so the Apostle Paul, like our missionaries today, went out to places and he just preached and did the ministry and made disciples, and he trusted on those where he'd been before to see that there was a need to support him or... He worked at his trade, which was tent making. Literally, we have a term today called tent making missionaries from the Apostle Paul's trade, which was literally making tents, sewing them together. And so he would go into a place and, and look for the tent makers, and he would work, and he would earn a living. Now, the Corinthians were criticizing him, saying, you didn't even get an offering from us. What kind of criticism is that? And that's what he's saying. He said, what's wrong with you? He said, I didn't take an offering from you because I was there to minister to you. Now, to the Philippians, you see what he just said? He said, even when, he said, at the beginning of the gospel, in other words, at the beginning of his ministry, he goes out to preach, and the Thessalonians sent an offering, or the Philippians sent an offering ahead. He said, when I was in Thessalonica, you sent more than once. The principle that we, that we understand here is, it is right for those uh, who serve uh, the body of Christ to be supported. Now, I'm fully aware that this sounds like, a, like, a, like a, a, an advertisement for my own salary today. I'm, a, I'm aware of that. 
But you know what? We're going to get to a point here in a minute that you need to know beyond the advertisement. Okay? I'm very thankful to get paid. Um, next week's payday. There will be a check in my box when I get to church. I'm very thankful for that, and I'm thankful for your giving for that. That is not the point of what I'm preaching today. And I hope you understand that as we move on through here. But it's important to understand because there are some Christian folks who would say, no, it's wrong to have a pastor who gets paid. No, it absolutely is permissible by God. It's approved by God. And in fact, here's what, uh, how Paul summarizes it in 1 Timothy. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of a double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Here he refers to that same truth again. The laborer is worthy of his wages. So clearly the double honor here has something to do with being paid. Okay, And so God says, yes, this is an acceptable thing. And the principle is this, God supports his full-time servants through his other servants. It's absolutely right for us to support those missionaries we're sending around the world and, and for to support whoever. We, we, I'm the only full-time person here. We have several part-time people. And uh, believe me, we don't pay them enough. You know, uh, Andrew, who takes care of all of our technology stuff here, if we had to hire a technology expert with his skill, we'd be paying a lot more. Don't listen to that, Andrew. I suppose when he graduates college, we'll have to give him another raise. But uh, it is absolutely right to do that because, as the Apostle Paul said, don't I have a right to eat? I mean, that, that's the whole nature. We're, we're, we're supporting a person's time. But now we, we move on to, to start to get to the real heart of this matter of giving when we see that Paul not only appreciated their financial support, he appreciated their partnership. Look at verse 14. You have done well that you shared. The word share is based on the word fellowship, most often translated fellowship, koinonia. Then in verse 15, you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared. No church fellowshiped with me concerning giving. We don't use the word fellowship that way, but we should because it really means partnership. You know, when a, when a missionary comes, uh, uh, we're, we're going to have uh, a couple of them here in July, and, and we will receive an offering for their work. And the mental image that needs to be created in you is, we're partners. We're partners. It's not us giving them something so they can go. It's us joining hands and being partners together in the ministry. God views those who support his workers as partners in the results of the ministry. As partners in the results. Here's how Paul enunciated this truth in 1 Corinthians 3. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. You see the teamwork? He's talking teamwork here. So then neither he who plants is anything or he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. And each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, you are God's building. You are God's fellow workers. We're in partnership with God. Now, I don't mean to demean God. 
I do mean to elevate you. Because God has not only chosen the ends or what he's going to do in the world, he has chosen the means to get there. And the means is us. And part of that us is giving. And so when we give, we're partners with whatever ministry we're giving to, and we're partners with God. This passage goes on to say this, according to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation, and another one builds on it, but let each one take heed how he builds, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it. Because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will earn a reward. Paul says we are working together. That's a map of the world. Okay? I'm, I, I've got some arrows that are going to go on here. And I want you to tell me the name of the country, first of all, and then the name of our partner that is in that part of the world. Okay? And I know it's small. I know it's hard to see. But if you know our missionary family and our giving well enough, you should be able to say, well, in that general area is this country, and you should be able to make a good guess. Okay? And I'll help you out a little bit. There's one right there. What country is that? What? Bangladesh. And who's our partner there? Well, the Summers used to be there. They, they've just moved, but there's somebody that we've been supporting for years and years in Bangladesh. John Sirkar. That's right. He's going to be with us in September, and uh, you'll be blessed to hear about his ministry, reaching people for the Lord that you or I wouldn't... He's a Bangladeshi national. And he came over here to be trained, went back, and, and has had tremendous ministry. Um, what country is that? Thailand. Who's our partners there? The Caners. Uh, Rick and Lisa Caner are there and uh, are doing a good job there. What country is that? Spain. The city? Madrid. And their, uh, our partners' names? Thornburgs. That's right. They've labored away in a country that was... You don't think of Europe as being oppressive against evangelical Christianity, but Spain especially used to be. And they have labored to the point of having an independent church with a Spanish pastor, and they're ready to build their own building. The city has given, has given them land to build a building on. What a tremendous thing. We're praying that their current building will sell so they'll have funds to build a new building. What country is that? And who's our partners there? The Everett's. We just saw a little video from them a couple of weeks ago, how they got property, and now it's going to be a ministry center, and so on. Now, I know that's just the neighborhood of Washington State. So what's one of our partners in Washington area? The Sanchez family in eastern Washington. We're working with them. What's another partner in this neck of the woods? The, the Northwest Baptist Home Mission and something we just talked about a few minutes ago. Camp Gilead. That's right. We're partnering with them. This summer, 100 kids will accept Christ as their Savior at Camp Gilead. What a great partner. There's another one there, down in Oregon. Corbin University, in particular, the school of ministry there where they're training people to serve the Lord as pastors and missionaries and so on. One more, I think. What country is that? El 
Togo, who's our partners there? What? The Neufelds, Tim and Esther. Who's our new partner there that we started supporting recently? The Molsies. Both those couples will be with us for our mission conference this fall. And last but not least, Greece. Who's our partner there? Helen Steele. Yeah, that's right. The Greek Bible Institute. All those places. If you put money in the offering today, some of your money is going to all those places and more. Look at this. Tim Neufeld just sent this over. Up in the north part of Togo, where they are ministering, is this a tribe of people, the Tambera. And they live in mud huts like that, literally. And uh, out front, these little things right here, uh, those are idols to protect their house. That's a church. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. I'm going to get the number right here. They just recently baptized seven believers in a place that's not only idol-worshiping, classic, dark Africa, as we used to call it, but Muslim. In Bangladesh, 20 people were recently baptized by John Sirkar. In the Middle East, a country that I won't name today, pastors are being trained, churches are going forward. And look, <laughs> look at verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. When you put money in the offering of our church or when you send it yourself to some mission endeavor, all of those places where people get saved in heaven, God puts a check mark in your account. Did you know you had an account in heaven? And did you know that God is keeping track? What a, what a wonderful thing to be a financial partner in the gospel ministry. Now, uh, some of you may be feeling bad because you can't give too much. I just want to answer the question briefly. What does God expect you to give? Well, 1 Corinthians 16 answers that question. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, that's Sunday, in other words, when you get together, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper. In other words, God says, I know that you don't all make a zillion dollars, so I don't expect you to give a, a zillion dollars. He said, as God has prospered you, we should give as we can, as God prompts us, as we prayerfully consider, according to what we have. And frankly, the more we have, the more we ought to give. Are we supposed to give 10%? No. The people in the Old Testament had to give more than 10%. And under grace, under grace, the standard goes up, not down. What did Jesus say about murder? He said, you've heard that it's wrong to murder, but I say if you even hate 
It's like murder. So the standard goes up, not down. So whatever, if you want to judge by their standard, whatever their standard was, it needs to go up. But God hasn't even said that. He's just said, look, how have you been prospered? How have you been blessed? And even more so, what I want to say today is, don't you want to invest? Don't you want to partner with what these folks are doing? Boy, I do. I have a friend who used to work for Boeing, and they gave out raises in groups. So that, here's the manager of, this, of his group would get a bunch of money. You can give it out to your workers as you see fit according to their merit. And he came to my friend one year and he said, I could only give you $1,000, so I wouldn't insult you with that. So he gave him nothing. You wouldn't do that to God, would you? You wouldn't come to God and say, well, God, I can't do anything significant, so I'm not going to do nothing at all. I, I really do want to challenge you to say, what could I do? What could I aspire to do? What could I orient my life to do? Now, giving isn't the most important Christian virtue. I mean, growing in Christ is probably the most important Christian virtue. But, but am I even aiming to partner in God's gospel ministry through my giving? Am I prayerfully saying, what could I do someday? I heard a man one time say, he said, I have a goal in my life to give, I think he said, $100,000. In other words, over all the years of his life, I wanted to add up to $100,000 that I give to the Lord's work. I never thought of it like that before. Maybe you would establish a goal like that. And you know, boy, by the time I'm in the ground, I want it to be this much. Or, or maybe, whatever it might be. What do you aspire to give? Might God bless you if you prayerfully said, God, help me to give? Well, the next thing that Paul appreciated in his thank you note was their sincerity. Look at verse 18, please. Indeed, I have all and I abound. This is a way for, and he said, I'm full. Their gift must have been very generous. And he said, what you sent was a sweet smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. One of the things that we really understand from this passage is when we give, it is a sacrifice to God. He's obviously building on the Old Testament imagery where, where they would come to the temple, they would bring their animal, the blood would be shed, parts of the animal might be burned, parts of it might be boiled and eaten, or different things. But the net effect of it was the part that was burned on the altar was called a sweet aroma. In other words, God in heaven said, I'm glad that you're doing this for me. And he appreciated it. And Paul says, when you give this offering to me, it is a sweet aroma to God. In 2 Corinthians, he put it this way. He's writing to the Corinthians, talking about the Philippians. Brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear them witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely giving. 
imploring us with much urgency that we might take the gift and the fellowship of ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Apostle Paul said, all I was hoping for was an offering, but these people got right with God and gave themselves in worship to God. And so the principle we understand is this, when done with a sincere heart, God receives our offering as an act of worship. Every bit is an act of worship as the Lord's Supper, as a prayer, as a song, as a deed done in his name. God receives our offerings as an act of worship. In fact, God says that every single believer can worship him. Look at 1 Peter, coming to him as a living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. We are a living the church is a living thing, and we offer sacrifices to God. Prayer is a sacrifice that pleases God. Reading the Bible and living it is a sacrifice that pleases God. Righteous living is a sacrifice that pleases God. Giving testimony to God's goodness and kindness pleases Him. Helping others grow in Christ pleases God. And supporting His work here and around the world pleases God. And as the offerings is specific that we saw in 1 Corinthians, supporting other Christians who have needs, especially when those needs are for the sake of Christ. Perhaps the reason we don't give is because we aren't living to worship God. In our society, we're fixated on making money. We constantly speak to our young people about staying in school, and going to college or learning a trade so they can get a good job and live a good life. Translate that, make a lot of money. What kind of job ambition should a Christian have? Now, don't, I don't think it's particularly godly to be poor. You know, I'm just going to aim to be poor all of my life. No, that's not what God says, and that's not what I'm saying either. But I'm saying, what kind of job ambition should the Christian have? Some would say we should not aim to make a lot of money. I would agree in general that our life should not be oriented toward making money. But perhaps we ought to aspire to give to God's work. Perhaps we ought to pray for income so we could create some outgo for God's work. Now, I, I, I think there's a couple of errors here. One is the error. Uh, I, I knew a young man in high school once who said, I'm going to become independently wealthy by the time I'm 40, and then I'm going to serve the Lord. And he actually had a plan in place and was making money and had money in the bank, and he had, this, he had a certain plan of investing, he had a certain plan of how he physically made money, and he was good at it. And so he wasn't just pie in the sky, but the idea that I'm going to wait till I'm 40 to do something for the Lord, what that really ends up being is I'm never going to do anything for the Lord. A guy like that who's good at making money is going to get wrapped up in making money, and when he turns 40, he's going to look back and go, you know, if I really push this, I could make about a bazillion dollars. And that's going to be the temptation. The other temptation is the people who say, well, it doesn't matter. I just get by. I just whatever. And, and, and meanwhile, 
there's missionaries waiting to go. And people waiting. You know, what's crazy is that in the other parts of the world, you say, you want to talk about God? They go, yep. And they're just waiting for people to talk to them. We can't hardly understand that. So there's people waiting to go. And so God's instruction is this. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be proud or haughty or arrogant about their riches, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but to trust in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Whatever you have, it is a blessing from God, but you should not trust in it. Let them do good and be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. I, I have a friend who's with the Lord now, older gentleman, when, when I knew him. And he was on the board of a couple different Christian ministries, and his wife made him stop taking his checkbook when he went to board meetings. Because <laughs> they would talk about a need, and he'd write him a check. And God had blessed him. I don't know if he blessed him because he gave, or because he knew he would give. God blessed him, and he gave a lot of money. And he gave a lot to his family, and took care of his wife, but he didn't trust in money. He saw money as a way to serve the Lord. There's one more thing that Paul appreciated. Paul appreciated their sacrifice. I hope you remember in the passage that I read from 1 Corinthians, or from 2 Corinthians, well, here we're going to review it. Um, in a great trial of affliction... The abundance of their joy and deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. In other words, these people were not flush and giving out of their, their, their uh, abundance. They gave even when they couldn't quite afford it. They weren't necessarily wealthy people, but they appreciated the ministry of Paul. They appreciated the plight of the Christians who were being persecuted in Jerusalem, and so they gave to it. And here's the promise that God enunciates back to them now. Look at verse 19. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. The principle is this. God promises to sustain those who give. Verse 19 does not stand alone. It's not a verse you should pull out and quote anytime there's a difficulty in your life. It is a promise attached to the truth of supporting God's work. And what God says is, if you give to me, I'm going to make sure you can continue to give. I love this passage in 2 Corinthians. He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart. There it is. You want to know how much to give as you purpose in your heart? As he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Do you understand that? You, you give to God, and he gives back so you can keep doing those good works. Now, Please understand, I am not saying the same thing as those goofballs on TV. Although I do have a little envelope, and if you give me a dollar, you'll get ten back next week. 
No. If you all, if you all give me a dollar, I'll have a real nice lunch today. That's what I'll do. <laughs> that is a corruption of the Scripture. Okay. But what God does say is if you will, with a genuine heart, give to his ministry, he'll make sure you can keep on giving. He never talks about giving to get. If your purpose in giving to the Lord is to get something, you are mistaken. But if your purpose in, is in giving to the Lord is to say, oh God, there's, there's people in Bangladesh being reached, and I want to be part of that. And so you, when John Surkar comes this, this fall, you give an offering to that. And God will look at that and say, I see your heart. There's another missionary coming in October. I'm going to give you some more. And those missionaries will come in October, and, and the Mulsies will tell you how they're getting ready to go to the field, and the Neufelts are coming home from the field after 40 years of service, and your heart will be moved to say, oh God, I'm going to give to you again. And if you stop and think, you'll go, man, I, I just wrote a check last month, and now I'm writing an extra one now. How'd that happen? Where'd that money come from? Because the more you honor God, the more he'll give to you. I was talking about this with some folks recently, and and a, uh, a fellow said to me, uh, he was in church, and, he, and there was an appeal for a missionary offering, and he turned over to his wife, and he says, give X number of dollars. And she said, we already gave. He said, give it again. And uh, a week later, a guy calls him up off of an old ad for some stuff he had for sale that he wasn't even using, and gave him the exact amount of money back. Can God do that? Yes. Is he going to do it so you can live large? No. But if you really want to support God's work, and you really wrap your heart around that and say, okay, God, I'm going to give, and I'm going to trust you. That's what the Philippians did. They couldn't afford it, but they gave it anyway. And that's why Jesus put it this way. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, put into your bosom. For with the same measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Is that really possible? Yes, it is. And I could give you many testimonies in my own life of how the Lord gives back when we give out. A week or so ago, I went over to a business and... Uh, and I knew this fellow worked there, a uh, fellow that manages this place. And I transacted my business. And when we got done, then he, he and I visited. Uh, he was a teenager in our youth ministry 30 years ago. We didn't lead this man to Christ. He was already a Christian. But uh, his family came to our church from a church that was kind of dead. And uh, he and his brother really came alive in the Lord. And, and ever since, they've been living for the Lord uh, to the extent that now he is uh, a very significant leader in his church, and he's helped lead them through some important transitions. They have a great ministry at the church he's part of. What I want you to remember is this. 30-plus years ago, 35 years ago, some people gave so that myself and the senior pastor could build into kids like that. And now those kids 
are helping other people be disciples. And those people who gave back then are still getting credit for the work that these people are doing. And some of those people are in heaven. I don't know what the bank of heaven is like. Can you go there and watch your account tick up? It's like a stock ticker. Say, oh, Lord, where did that come from? And Lord will say, remember that guy right there? You, you built into that guy's life. I didn't, I didn't do anything with that guy. Yes, you did. You supported that ministry. People around the world, we have no idea, but God is able to remember, and he does remember. John the Apostle wrote, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And I would just paraphrase it this way. There's no greater joy than knowing that you have helped others walk in the truth by your work, by your prayer, and by your giving. Heavenly Father, help us. We are selfish and stingy, and it's hard for us to see beyond today, to trust you for tomorrow. But we know you are a good God, and we know you are able to provide. So help us with a sincere heart to give to your work here and around the world. And Father, as we do, make us aware of your blessings to enthuse us to give more. Help us, help us not to be stingy. You were not. You gave your son, and he gave his all for us. Help us to give in like fashion. I pray in Christ's name, amen.